Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Bernice Carnegie. Bernice is an educational speaker and life enrichment storyteller who carries forward the experiences and philosophies of her father, Herbert Carnegie, widely regarded as the best black hockey player to never play in the National Hockey League. Born in Toronto in 1919, Herb Carnegie grew up listening to Hockey Night in Canada and cheering for his Toronto Maple Leafs. As a teenager, he developed elite hockey skills and went on to build a successful career in the semi-pro and minor leagues. However, Herb experienced severe racism and discrimination throughout his career, and although invited to the New York Rangers pro training camp in 1948, he was never offered the opportunity to play in the NHL. In 1955, Herb founded the first registered hockey school in Canada that included a character guideline called the Future Aces Creed. This philosophy became the focus of the Herbert Carnegie Future Aces Foundation that was co-founded by his family in 1987, with his daughter Bernice serving as its executive director for 17 years. Today, Bernice continues to promote the family legacy of advocating for racial equality and inclusion in sports, co-founding and serving as the president of an international organization known as the Carnegie Initiative. Bernice's father, Herb Carnegie, passed away in 2012, but was proudly represented by his family at his induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2022. He is an inspirational Canadian icon who is remembered for his legacy of enriching the lives of young people. Thus, I am very pleased to welcome Bernice Carnegie to Toronto Legends. Bernice, thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I am fine. (laughs) And where am I? I'm in Scarborough, just uh, north of the city of Toronto. I am delighted to be here with you, Andrew. Well, I'm delighted to have you. We love getting into the small things of our city. If I may ask, what part of Scarborough and have you have you lived there for a long time? I have lived here for a long time. Uh, my husband and I uh, lived in rural, rural Newcastle. Uh, he built us a beautiful home out there in the middle of nowhere. As teenagers, brought my children back to the Toronto area. And so I've been here, I think, maybe 37 years or more. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, I think we should go all the way back and get the Herb Carnegie story, which will then nicely lead into the Bernice Carnegie story. So please tell us about your father. Who was Herbert Carnegie? To me, of course, he was my father and dearly loved him. He was a kind, gentle soul who thought of family first. Uh, but he was also someone that clearly excelled at everything he did. From the moment uh, he touched hockey, uh, reading those articles about him, just kind of uh, made my heart go a little pitter-patter because I got to see him in a different way, the way some journalists uh, chose to, uh, to share his story. You know, he went on to doing some amazing things after hockey. He had a golf career that paralleled that, won 24 golf championships and two national titles. He was an amazing businessman, first black man to be hired by a major investment company, Investors Group, at the time. And he excelled there as well, 23 years in a row, He reached millionaire status, which is production figures, uh, and he was the first advisor to actually be able to do that. 23 years in a row. Can you believe it? 
He was great at everything he did. And, and one thing that struck me, Bernice, was when you go back to your grandparents, if you want to talk a little about this, they had come from Jamaica in 1912. And it doesn't seem like a, a simple path to a young new immigrant to jump into hockey and golf. Well, my grandfather, yes, did come in his early 20s. He had a grade four education. He became a janitor with Toronto Hydro and worked there for 42 years. But he seemed to have a real business head, which is something I guess my father saw in him. My grandfather started buying property all over the city. The house that I was raised in was in the same block that my father was a child, where my grandfather had owned that whole block of housing area. It was, it was, it was country. <laughs> they didn't even have they didn't even have numbers on the houses <laughs> Bernice what part of town was that I believe that was North York that was North York but my grandfather also had homes down at Bloor and Avenue Road in Forest Hill North Toronto Montreal um, I think he had some places in uh, New York and in Jamaica so this uh, grade four janitor had a real business head and he that's how he supported the family he'd buy the properties and rent them out and that uh, supplemented his supplemented the income for the seven children that he had and then talk about when herb and your mom audrey raised a family of four you have three siblings talk about your upbringing where did you go to school and what do you remember about growing up in north york nothing much had changed um when i was a child uh, our home was built by the family. It's still standing at 244 Empress. Wow. It was, the property was bought from my grandfather, Carnegie, for $50. <laughs> that property is now worth millions of dollars. And I'm just thinking about why they might have kept this house when they have been tearing down so many of the others. But it had three walk-in closets. And that was almost unheard of back then, with a laundry room that was right beside the kitchen instead of in the basement. So the house was very special, and I'm sure they've changed a lot on the inside, but the outside looks pretty much like what I remember it. My father and his siblings were the, were the only black students in their school, and by the time I came along, some 30 years later, Nothing had changed. Yeah. I was the only black student in my classes and for 13 years until I went to college. Where did you go to high school, Bernice? Would this have been like Earl Haig or something? Earl Haig, yeah. Three generations of Carnegie's at Earl Haig. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I'm a North York boy myself, and I have uh, two siblings. So the three of us went to A.Y. Jackson, which was the... Bitter rival of Earl Haig, of course. Yes. <laughs> well, it, I'm uh, not too far from A.Y. Jackson right now. I'm about five minutes away from it. Well, as you say, it's amazing the changes. I had my own, uh, my parents moved to, as you say, the, the sticks. At uh, When we went to Victoria Park in Van Horn in 1970, they bought their house for $30,000. Mm -hmm. They had stretched themselves. They had overextended themselves at $30,000. And of course, as you say, today, 
we only wish we'd bought the whole block because uh, everything has changed. I want to talk to you about the stories that went from your father as he got into hockey. The story goes that Con Smythe, the Maple Leaf owner until the 1960s, he once saw a young Herb Carnegie skate and said he'd offer $10,000 to anyone who could, quote, turn Herb Carnegie white. The power of that comment obviously was considerable. Your father had grown up a Leafs fan. Your father writes in a book, I was conscious of carrying Con Smythe's remark with me all the way through my hockey career, and I always played the game as if to say, there's got to be somebody bigger than Con Smythe out there who will say, come and play for us. But alas, there was not. What, what does that comment mean, and what did that, how did that drive your father to keep going? He could have easily been bitter and said, I'm giving up. I know I've had conversations with my father about the times and basically what Con Smythe was admitting was that my father was a sterling player and should have had the opportunity. But in that era, it was hard for people to actually break through some of the barriers. You you. You had to do certain things as black people to, uh, to make your way. And sometimes it required that you were quiet about it. Of course, in this particular case, my father was a teenager. So he had nothing to say about it except the fact that he had so much confidence in himself that he really felt that if he gave his all in every game that eventually someone would actually see his talent and let him break through those barriers. He did get an invitation to the New York Rangers. He had just been voted most valuable player and um, he performed well, he said. The other players there thought that he was one of the best. And uh, what they did is they offered him a trip to the miners with a 40% cut in pay. My father had a home and three children at the time. And I challenge any man to, <laughs> even, even if they have that wonderful goal that maybe I'll get into the NHL. They weren't, they weren't offering him the NHL. They were offering him a trip to the miners, a farm team. And they offered him three three opportunities, and they were all to the farm team and with a cut in pay. So what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm very happy that my father chose his family over a dream that may not have even happened because you don't know whether they would have actually called him up or not. Sure. Well, that says a lot about the man when you do choose your family first. Jean Beliveau played alongside your dad in the Quebec Senior League en route to becoming an immortal Montreal Canadian and a fellow Hall of Famer to your father. Jean Beliveau was unequivocal in his endorsement of your father. He wrote in his autobiography, It's my belief that Herbie was excluded from the NHL because of his color. It was undisputed. But your dad was part of the Black Aces line, and this was the first and legendary all-black line in semi-pro hockey. Do you want to talk a little about that line? Yes, they were an anomaly. <laughs> My father ended up playing hockey up north because his brother had already gone up there. And um, my uncle Ozzie was five years older than, than my father and uh, encouraged him. 
they, they had been playing hockey on the ponds in North York for years. My father went up there, and then Manny McIntyre from the Maritimes uh, heard about them. They were getting a lot of press, and uh, he orchestrated um, coming to uh, their team. And uh, he actually, I, I have a uh, tape that I listened to not too long ago. I'd never really met Manny and didn't know him, but his voice was, <laughs> he had this amazing voice. And on the tape, he says, and, you know, I made them give me a ticket back just in case I wasn't good enough to play with them. <laughs> so uh, I can remember my father saying, hot dog, you know, he can skate. He, he's, you know, he's pretty good. And so uh, Manny and Ozzy tended to be protectors of my father. He was the smaller player. They often protected him from getting hurt because he was a target. He was good. He, he managed to uh, wind his way up and down that ice in and out of the other players. Yeah, I mean, it, it was special. And I, for, for about four years, uh, they did have time together and they brought the, the articles that I have, and I have really uh, thousands of them, uh, but the ones that speak about the black line say they brought in crowds from all over. Even if it wasn't the team you were cheering for, <laughs> uh, there was something really special about uh, the black line and, and they used very very colorful headlines they called them the brown bombers and the dark destroyers and the ink spots and the dusty raiders and you know back then it didn't um i know now they might have some some comments about those names but i never heard my father actually have a reaction a, a bad reaction to it, it it was more about saying, you know, their talent was so strong that, uh, yeah, they made these amazing headlines. Well, this line opened doors of opportunity, paving the way for other black and uh, players like Willie O'Ree, the first NHL player who was black in 1958. So this line of your dad, your uncle Ozzy, and Manny McIntyre really paved the way. And I want to ask you about how your dad's story interacts with the story of Willie O'Ree. Well, you know, they have a saying that uh, it's hard to be what you can't see. And so hockey was very white back then. And just the fact that my father and Ozzy and Manny um, made that breakthrough, I think opened some doors, even if it didn't happen immediately, some of the marginalized communities um, were aware and could say, okay, well, these guys did it. Maybe I can do it too. So Willie did come four years later to make it into the NHL. But I do think he feels a kinship towards what my father and the other two gentlemen did. And if, and if I may suggest, Bernice, even more than a kinship, I'm going to just set this up, if I may, just to give the listeners the quick background. Willie O'Ree is a former Canadian professional ice hockey player. He was famously known for being the first black player in the National Hockey League, playing 45 games as a winger for the Boston Bruins. He, O'Ree, is referred to as the Jackie Robinson of ice hockey 
for breaking the black color barrier in the NHL. And is he, in fact, met Jackie Robinson when he was younger. Willie was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in November 2018. But the key quote I want to present to you, Willie O'Ree, Herb Carnegie was the one. It should have been Herbie to break the color barrier. Everything your father went through, Bernice, was before Jackie Robinson, before the color barrier had been broken. So your father's path was so much more significant, and he's certainly paved it for future players. Well, Jackie Robinson was breaking into baseball around the same time my father was uh, at his prime, and he really thought that he might get an opportunity once that had happened. But it wasn't to be. The one thing that I do admire my father for is that his constitution of never giving up, of always trying to stay positive, he navigated around racism very well and went on to open doors for millions of young people uh, with his initiatives. So as much as my father ended up feeling hurt and I know in some of those later videos when he was asked the question about not getting there, he had had a lot of time to digest the fact that he didn't reach the goal he really wanted to reach. And as you get older, it kind of weighs on you. When he was younger, he thought he could change it. He worked very hard to try to change it. And he... In many other parts of his life, he was the first black man, too. And he was very successful at all of those endeavors. But, you know, as I, as I watched him as he got older, that, that missed opportunity did weigh heavy on him in the end. Because there wasn't anything he could do. He did the best he could to, to make it happen. I often say that racism is a thief. It steals away um, opportunities and chances for all people to understand and experiences not only their similarities but their differences and how those can help you to grow. So you have to ask the question, why wouldn't you want everybody included? Like what's the motivation for, for not doing that? I mean if you're if you have a top organization and a top hockey team or baseball team or soccer team, wouldn't you want to be competing with the best? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, and, you, or, or what is it worth if you're, if you're not including all of the best? Yeah, that's a great point. If you want to be the best, you got to compete with the best. And Bernice, it strikes me as one of your things that your father kind of accepted if that's the word is that we have control over some things and some things we don't and what he did his best accepted what he did not have control of which is being given his opportunity and he put all his resources and his attention towards the future and i want to talk a little about the future aces philosophy or creed this was something your father created as kind of a guideline of expectations of how he wanted to live his life and how he wanted others to treat him what is the future aces, and what is the future aces philosophy, Bernice? Well, my father was very involved in 
hoping to make change. And so when he started his future ACES hockey school, he understood that the boys would probably not be NHLers. But he had hoped that through the hockey school, he could teach values along with hockey skills and just, you know, improving your body generally. But why not take a look at what's going on in your mind? Because he wanted to make sure that these young boys went forward being better citizens than the way he sometimes was treated. And systemic racism is very difficult. I mean, one of the, I'm going to digress just for a minute because I think this is important. One of the um, incidences that happened to my father, and he was frequently in contention for the highest points um, while he was playing, being the person that was competing with him actually was hospitalized. And they continued to give points to that man while he was in the hospital, and my father lost the points that year. He lost out by two points. So that's what systemic racism looks like. And that, those are some, you know, there's the name calling. Okay, he dealt with the name calling. But when, you, when everybody knows that wrongdoing has happened, one of the things I'm thinking about is how that other hockey player accepted the award knowing he got the points while he was in the hospital. Okay. How could you? Well, uh, you, you, you want to ask that question, but you know what? Everybody knew and nobody said anything. So future aces in this hockey school was helping these young boys to be the leaders of the future. And my father chose the word aces, attitude, C, cooperation, E, example, S, sportsmanship and a number of other words in between, where these were the values that were important to him, and he hoped that they would have some appeal to other people. Of course, there are many, many values and attributes that we can look at in our life, and we should be looking at them. We should be looking at them, and we should be looking at how we treat other people. So it was all about behavior and action. And my father was a marvel at behavior and action, trying to make that difference. Now, of course, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> <laughs> he was not perfect. But you know what? I always saw him pivot. He, he would pivot and say, okay, so that didn't work out. What's the next thing I can do that will help to make it happen? And he chose young people because he felt those are malleable minds. If we get them while they're young, maybe we can help them along the way to do some things that are a little better than the way I was treated. So I just have to pat my father on the back for dropping a seed that actually became a movement. Because what happened is, We ended up speaking to sometimes 20,000 students a year, sharing his story in relationship to how you can do better. So yes, I had some issues, but you can't 
just sit on the issues and not move forward. And that was the message that he continued to share um, with the community. And I joined him. I went with him a few times to, to some schools. I didn't say anything. I just kind of was walking in his shadow. After about the fourth school, I went, oh my gosh, I get what my father's doing here. I need to be part of this. And so we eventually started a charity because we wanted to give out scholarships along with the work that we were doing in schools. We were, we were actually implementing 10 to 15 schools a year with the project. The foundation also ended giving out close to a million dollars in scholarships over a period of about 35 years. So it's kind of amazing. And now, <laughs> I love it. I'm getting notes from some of the people that won those awards or that have been at those schools. I, it's hard for me to go anywhere in the city without running into somebody who actually had a connection either to my father to a school in which we had started a future ACES program, or to um, myself. I mean, I've been speaking for 40 years now and absolutely love it. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Bernice Carnegie, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got other leadership icons, including Canadian Ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, neurosurgeon Dr. Charles Tatter, and ER doctor Brian Goldman. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, your father was a ahead of his time. That term pivot is, uh, is what we all talk about we need to do today. Your father knew that needed to be done then. As you say, his focus was on the future, being a leader for young people. Well, if you weren't getting enough notes and uh, acknowledgement and recognition before, it certainly came up big last year, Bernice. Uh, your Hockey Hall of Fame induction for your father this past November. That must have been an amazing weekend. Do you want to talk about some of your biggest memories of that Hockey Hall of Fame induction weekend? Well, here my father would have been 103. And at 103, his memory still is here. And he brought the family back together, family we hadn't seen for 30 years, and some family we hadn't seen ever before. This was the catalyst for a huge family reunion. Uh, the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment were generous, very generous, in putting on a dinner for our family. Many of our sponsors and partners who have joined with us with the uh, Carnegie initiative that we've started for acceptance and inclusion in hockey. So it was unbelievable. And then to think that on November the 8th, the, the date of his birth, the mayor of Toronto made a proclamation that it was Herb Carnegie Day in Toronto. <laughs> I just, um, you know what, that that plaque is sitting in the Herbert H. Carnegie Centennial Center in North York, so everybody can see it, along with other wonderful memorabilia there. But the other wonderful thing was the Hockey Hall of Fame 
staff who, I, I, I don't even know what to say. They made us feel so warm, included. Um, it was it was like a love-in. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all over it, trying to make everything that happened a pleasant memory for all of us. I can't thank them enough. I mean, Kelly, Massey, oh my. She was my contact, and so she was in touch all the time. It just was very special, and then it was also very special to meet the other inductees who had no idea who my father yeah. was. He was way before their time. You know, like, who's this guy coming? <laughs> um, that, that was too much. And so, you know what? Some of the comments that came from them was, oh, wow, what I what we've done is very small in comparison to what you're talking about with Herb Carnegie. But, of course, there's a huge difference in the time span of what my father was able to do from actually playing hockey to bringing hockey into the community. And it didn't matter what he did. It didn't matter whether they were talking about golf or they were talking about my father helping kids over 50 years and in education. Every article talked about hockey. <laughs> so you couldn't escape it. It all started with hockey. The leadership started with hockey. The drive to want to do better started with hockey. So hockey was a, was a friend and an ally to my father, even though there were some downsides to it. Well, your father now has had a day named after him, a street, a school, an arena. He's been inducted into 13 other Hall of Fames before the Hockey Hall of Fame. You're always keeping the story alive and spreading kind of your dad's philosophies. And another way you did that, Bernice, was his book, A Fly in a Pail of Milk, The Herb Carnegie Story. This was an autobiography, first published in 1997, but you took the opportunity to update it in 2019. Why did you update it, and what was that process like for you? Well, I can't take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> I can take credit for the writing, but okay. I, can't take, I can't take credit for the idea. Uh, the idea came through Kwame Mason, who did that lovely documentary, Soul on Ice, Past, Present, and Future. And Kwame was the last person to interview my father before he died. And uh, we, we stayed friends. And it was Kwame's idea that, hey, you know what? You might want to do something with this uh, wonderful book and share some of the ideas that you had. And so uh, he took me to ECW Press and uh, Michael Holmes uh, in 15 minutes said, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> And uh, so I got to share in the book stories my father never would have been able to. I got to update it to uh, include the many ways that my father was recognized after his death, even. I got to share about what it was like when my father lost his eyesight. Uh, the last 25 years of his life, he was blind. And what did that mean to him? And what did that mean to the family? And also, I didn't change the wording in my father's book. He did use the words 
profanity that he was called. And I chose not to take those words out because this is what history is. You can't erase, <laughs> you can't erase words um, and pretend they didn't happen. As so many people want to go, the N-word. And I'm going, well, isn't somebody going to ask, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All these young people are like, what does that mean? It, it requires a conversation for sure, but it was the truth of our life, and it is the truth of other people's lives now. And we do need to talk about it. We need to talk about why it is that human beings want to push people down versus pull people up. And what is, what's the benefit of that? What is the benefit of treating people badly? I think you really do have to ask the question. So I really was very, I was very cognizant of my father's words, and I felt that they should stand. And I felt that people should understand how that made him feel. And uh, so I got to comment on some of that. I got to comment on a few of the stories in the book that were really troubling to me and to actually share my parts of the story and, and realize that my life did echo my father's in many, many ways, but he ended up being okay. And I can remember thinking that when my son, my eldest son went to school at four and a half and we lived in an all-white community, and he was the only black student. And for two months, I was on edge. And then I snapped out of it. My dad was okay. My mom was okay. I was okay. And my son will figure out how to be okay. And Bernice, all of this is carried forward into, I guess, where you put the majority of your resources today in terms of your time and efforts, and that's the Carnegie Initiative. Would you like to talk about the Carnegie Initiative and what it is all about? Well, the Carnegie Initiative is an extension of everything my father started back in 1955. And it is for the acceptance and inclusion in hockey. So the, the title of my father's book, A Fly in a Pail of Milk, that's the story he lived. He was this lone person uh, working in a world that was not quite like him, but was his life. And now here we are picking up the values that he promoted, that we are trying to continue to make a difference in a way that's meaningful. Because it's unfortunate, but crap still is out there and the nicest people can be hurt by it. And so... Everybody needs to find a way that they are going to actually make those changes and try to help to just be the best of who you can be. So when I listened to my father speak many times, and he was an excellent speaker, it was always, I just want to make this place a better world than I found it. Inclusion getting others involved, as you say, making things better. Yes. Bernice, the, I want to talk about the Toronto Six. 
They are our city's pro hockey franchise in the PHF, or Premier Hockey Federation. I understand you are a co-owner. How did you get involved with the Toronto Six? And do you do you sit in a swank owner's box, uh, smoking a cigar, watching the team play, and wheeling and dealing, or what's your role? Well, no owner's box, but they do have a nameplate uh, on on a couple of seats, one for me and one for my father. And uh, it kind of tickles me that uh, I can go and sit in my little seat, and people will come up and chit chat with me and and whatnot. But it's a, it was a surprise to me uh, that I would get involved in something like this at this time, just like it was a surprise that I actually got involved with the, the Carnegie Initiative, and that was through uh, Bryant McBride. It was his, his idea, and I jumped on it with him, and I'm loving it, and now I'm also loving being with the Toronto Six and Sandy Joe Small and and Angela James and I mean these women are a powerhouse of energy and a belief that we can do things in a <clears throat> more upscale way and when I say upscale I'm really talking about upscale thinking <laughs> upscale thinking that, um, yes, you play the game, you, you work at it hard, the way my father always worked at everything hard. It, was, it wasn't that it just all fell in his lap. He worked and practiced to make all these things happen. And so it's so important that we understand what do you have to do to get there. It's all, it's all well and good to get to that space. But it requires time, it requires energy, it requires a great attitude of understanding that you want to work with people that are also wanting to do better for our world. And uh, so to actually have been uh, invited to be part of that uh, ownership, and I try to get out to every game and to meet meet the young ladies who are making it happen. And those young ladies have started initiatives in the community. Wow. Like the Soroya Tinker has started the Black Girls Hockey Club. Okay, let us, let us bring people in. Let us fill them with, with empowerment so that they can have strong lives and be leaders themselves. And so this is why working both with the Carnegie Initiative, which is an amazing team and board, and then working with the Toronto Six is such a blessing in my life at this time. I'm supposed to be sitting in a rocking chair uh, <laughs> watching TV. And what am I doing? <laughs> I am. I am interacting with with these groups of younger younger powerhouse people and uh, loving every moment of it. <laughs> loving every moment of it. Well, I do want to give a shout out. It is Tinker time. Soraya Tinker was a guest on this podcast. I encourage people to listen to our interview. As you say, Bernice, just an outstanding young lady and uh, not only a pro athlete, but really pushing things ahead and carrying on all the things that your father had talked about. 
I want to close off, if I may. I got a few loose ends that I have to ask you about in, in the research. Your father was a Spider-Man comic. <laughs> What's that all about? Yes, the, uh, the uh, chiefs of police in uh, Canada were doing an initiative to uh, help young people stay away from drugs. And they used my father as a real-life comic book character in a scenario of uh, him coaching young kids. And, you know, they, I, I guess they had drugs in the pox, and he worked with Spider-Man to quell that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Considering that Spider-Man is such an amazing, long-lived feature of our life, it's wonderful to think that my father still has that uh, notoriety. <laughs> He's a superhero. He's a superhero in, in the comic books and in life. <laughs> and something else interesting I found, Bernice, he was also a, a leading advocate for safety on the ice. It, most players did not wear helmet protection in the era of your father, but the black line, this line of your father... Uncle Ozzy and Manny McIntyre, they were leaders in kind of uh, bringing in safety into hockey. If I'm not mistaken, they were kind of early adopters of the hockey helmet. Yes, uh, they did believe in safety. The, uh, the black line did usually uh, wear their helmets for sure. And uh, they probably needed to because they were targets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they were, they were targets on the ice. And so, uh, they did believe in protecting them. And it, it wasn't the kind of gear, of course, you have now. But yeah. my father did not get hurt. He still he, he always says, I came away with all my teeth. And <laughs> even though they didn't have a protector on their face, but they did have a protector around their, their heads. And it was a, a leather. It was actually a leather protector. Wow. Yeah. But in most of my father's pictures, you will see that he, he's wearing this... this uh, Helmet. And Bernice, you alluded to it, and I found it quite surprising. As you note, in the last 25 years of his life, Herb was blind. How did he deal with this, and, and how did it kind of change his, his outlook on things? It was hard for him to make that adjustment. He was an active person. He would have been golfing until he was 92, <laughs> I'm sure, because physically he was, he was well. But... He was told that he had glaucoma, and glaucoma is kind of like a silent thief that steals your sight away because there's no pain. And because there was no pain, my father didn't always do what he was supposed to do. So he was supposed to take drops. I think he could have preserved his eyesight longer. And my mother, to use the words that uh, most women don't like to hear, she nagged him. Uh -huh. <laughs> Him until finally she said, "Look, I'm not your, I'm not your mother. I'm your wife. This is something you should be doing." And so she stopped, and gradually his eyesight deteriorated to the point that he could not see at all. It meant that the family had to pick up uh, where he left off. I mean, his brain did not stop working, and my older sister Goldie calls it make work projects for Bernice. Because he'd come up with a new idea, and who had who was the one who got to uh, <laughs> implement the idea? It was usually me, and there were times when I I think I'm the only one that ever said no to my dad. 
Bernice, you've been so great with your time and sharing all the great stories about your father and your family. But I want to close with a quote from you. Life is not about what you get out of it, but what you put into it that counts. Yes. And clearly, if you are not continually trying to do something that moves our world forward, you're, you've just stopped. And there isn't any reason, as long as your brain is working, that we cannot each take a moment to do one little thing each day that's going to make somebody else feel a little better. And that's all it takes. You don't have to have grandiose ideas. You just have to have the willpower and the, and the desire to want to touch those around you in a positive way. Bernice, where can we best follow you and everything you're working on at the Carnegie Initiative? I keep thinking that my daughter is my best agent. <laughs> She's always putting stuff out there on, the, on LinkedIn about me. Her name is Brooke Chambers, if you want to follow that. And then I have my own website, which is BerniceCarnegie.com, and I tell stories not just of my father, but of other family members. We've been a black family in Canada since 1912, so we have a lot of amazing first and wonderful stories that can inspire those of you who just want to have a different viewpoint, a different perspective. Well, absolutely tremendous talking to you today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Love what you do. Love that you're sharing stories that others can gravitate to and enjoy. Well, it's, it's my pleasure having you. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Bernice Carnegie, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.